Bible with me this morning to the book of Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We're going to be focusing on verses 9 through 12. Later in the service and in the sermon, we'll be looking at James chapter 2. So we want to keep that in mind as well. Romans chapter 4. Paul is continuing his argument about how we're justified by faith and dealing, really having a conversation with Jews who would appeal to Abraham as a reason, um, it's faith and being Jew that makes you right with God. And, and uh, Paul goes to Abraham to show, no, Abraham was justified by faith. And to today, we're going to see that Abraham was justified by faith alone. So if you have your Bible open, you'll, you'll see that uh, Paul talks about the blessings that belong to those whom God justifies Quoting from Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Great blessings indeed. And now let's pick it up at verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? In other words, is it just for Jews or is that blessing for Jews and Gentiles? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's ask the Lord's blessing now. God in heaven, thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit that accompanies that word to give us understanding. We pray that you do that now, and to the glory of Jesus, uh, to the building up of our faith, we pray it, amen. I just finished reading a novel um, about the Civil War, specifically about the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a great novel, so you don't need to ask me. For, I don't remember the title, actually. Um, <clears throat> but it was interesting uh, uh, insight into how the, uh, the Battle of Gettysburg impacted the citizens of the city and the surrounding countryside. Uh, here you have these two massive armies coming and colliding on your front lawn, and um, there was a great devastation caused by that, of course. One of the um, interesting, most interesting storylines in the novel was about a young lady, a, a slave who had run away from home, from the south, and was hiding uh, with some folks in Gettysburg. Her name was Juby. And this battle, of course, meant much more to her than just some political contest between uh, the armies of the north and the south. Uh, This battle was very personal for her. Uh, It would determine whether or not she and the baby in her womb would taste the freedom that Mr. Lincoln had declared in the Declaration of Emancipation. Uh, This was a battle to define whether or not she would ever get to step into the freedom or she would be stuck forever in a life of bondage and oppression. Well, this morning we come to a text that was a battleground much like Gettysburg course, in a spiritual context. Uh, The Great Reformation of the 16th century was a a conflict over the essential truths of the gospel. Are we justified, made right with God, and accepted in His sight by faith plus keeping of the law, or are we justified by faith alone? And that's not just a 
conflict um, for people who just have a you know, weird theological interest and like to hammer out finer points. It is a profoundly personal question. In the day, um, and still today, it's a battle to determine whether God's children will ever get to live and experience the joyful freedom that we have in the gospel, even though we're sinners, or are we still under bondage in some sense to the law, and specifically, are we in slavery to the Roman Catholic Church? That was the issue then, it's the issue today. Last week, uh, as we were looking at the first eight verses of chapter 4, uh, we looked at the truth of justification by imputation. And that just means that when God saves us, He justifies us, He declares us to be righteous, not because of any inherent righteousness in us, but by virtue of an imputed righteousness that is a gift, the righteousness of Jesus Christ accredited to us, counted to us. And that righteousness being the basis then of God's declaration of our innocence and all of the promises of God are opened to us and the the treasures of heaven pour out upon us because of that imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That, you see, the doctrine of justification is our declaration of emancipation. We are free, free from the curse of the law, free from the power of death, free to approach the Father with boldness and confidence, free to know that one day we will roam the, the, uh, the streets of heaven. We're not under law any longer. We've been set free. But however, however just as Lincoln's declaration of emancipation didn't end the war, so too the doctrine of justification doesn't end the devil's battle against the peace and freedom of God's children. The devil cannot stop you from being justified, but he can work diligently to keep you from enjoying it. He can work to keep you from experiencing the blessings that flow to you in that declaration of God over your life. And that's exactly what he does. God, in justification, declares you to be redeemed and righteous, restored, reconciled, once and for all. The devil, however, will work to keep you feeling like you're stained, shamed, guilty, unwanted, unworthy. He'll try to keep you under the law. He'll keep you looking to how you're doing, how you're performing, and specifically how you're failing. And assure you that Christ is not sufficient, or faith in Christ is not sufficient for your justification. The title of my message this morning is The Sufficiency of Faith, because that's what Paul deals with here, the sufficiency of faith. I love how Paul goes about this conversation. He asks questions, and he does that again in verse 9. He's just explained the blessings that belong to those who are justified. God Uh, forgives sins and remembers lawless deeds no more. Uh, Those are magnificent blessings. The question is, to whom do they belong? That's the million-dollar question. See, I I can tell you that there's a man wandering, or or I know there's a man in Wyoming who who will give a million dollars to whoever asks. But that is no help to you if I don't tell you who the man is and where he lives. How do you get the million dollars? And that's the question Paul asked. To whom does God give the incredible blessing 
of forgiveness of all your sin. Verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And the Jew, of course, would say, well, it's for the circumcised. It's for the Jews. Why? Well, because they're the children of Abraham, and God made His covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. Just read the text. That's what it says. And uh, they're the ones who had the law of Moses. The other nations didn't have the law of Moses, and they lived under it, and they strived to keep it. And so they're the ones who are deserving of the blessing. And that's how, they, that's how they lived. That's how they thought. And, of course, there are many, many professing Christians who believe exactly the same thing, have the same mentality. There are Christians who profess to believe that we are saved by faith alone, but when it comes to the blessings of God, they subconsciously are convinced that God gives His blessings to the deserving That person might be you. Let me ask you, have you ever experienced a difficult trial in your life and you feared that God was punishing you for something you did? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been angry with God for not answering your prayers even though you were trying your best to obey Him? Have you ever lacked thankfulness in your life? Well, see, those are, and you can list many more, but those are all symptoms of the same disease. Those are all symptoms of a secret assumption that God's blessings go to the deserving. And so when the trial comes, you connect it to something you've done wrong because that must be the reason. Right? Bad things happen to bad people. God doesn't bless bad people. God punishes bad people, and you're getting the punishment, and so you must have done something wrong. You, 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 you see how that works. If you've been angry with God, you've, you're doing your best to obey Him, and He's still not answering your prayers. Well, again, you believe that God blesses the deserving. If you lack gratitude in your life, well, then you must think that God blesses the deserving. In a sense, you, you must think that all the things that you have in your life, are, you actually deserve them. Or else you'd be thankful. You'd be filled with gratitude. Because you realize that you're thoroughly undeserving, and yet God has poured this, this incredible goodness and kindness upon you. See, I would say we all struggle to some, uh, to some degree with this very disease. And yet Paul makes it explicitly clear that the blessings of God do not go to the deserving, but to the believing. God justifies the ungodly who believe. Faith, you see, is both necessary and sufficient. So one of the great arguments of the Reformation. Um, Because everyone agreed that faith was necessary to be saved. You have to believe. The question was, is faith sufficient for salvation? R.C. Sproul um, helps explain the the difference in this way. He says, um, we all understand that oxygen is necessary for a fire. You can't have fire without oxygen. If you snuff, you take away the oxygen, the fire goes out. Oxygen is necessary for a fire. Is oxygen sufficient for a fire? A sufficient cause of fire. No, 
Oxygen by itself can't create a fire. You have to have fuel. You have to have spark. It's not, it's not a sufficient cause. And the issue in the Reformation is, is faith a necessary, uh, is, is it necessary? Yes, everyone says it's necessary, right? You have to believe. The question was, is it a sufficient cause of justification? Or do you need to add something to it? Are you saved, you see, by faith or by faith alone? Is it faith plus uh, repentance, faith plus um, doing penance, faith plus uh, your, your heart works, you're, you're making yourself better in this life and then in purgatory, is that how it works? Or are we justified by faith alone? Is faith sufficient? And the Roman Catholic Church says no. Faith is not a sufficient cause for justification. You have to become inherently righteous. Well, the Apostle Paul will disagree, and he uses Abraham to prove that. If you have your Bible, notice how he continues on, verse 9, B and 10, where we see the proof. He says, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? Now, Paul's already proven, and you've got to hang with me here because it's a little technical, but it's right in the text, so I think we can follow. Paul's already proven from Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham was counted righteous, not by works, but by faith. And now he goes one step further to show that it's not just by faith, but it's by faith alone. And Paul does that in two ways. Notice he, he um, speaks of the chronology, how things happened, and then he speaks of the meaning of circumcision. And we'll look briefly at those two things. First, the chronology. You see, a Jew would say that um, we're made right with God by faith plus circumcision. Even professing Christian Jews would say that. Remember the battle that was happening in, in Gala- the, the churches of Galatia, where, where Jewish, Jewish Christians are saying Gentiles must not only believe, they need to come under the Mosaic law. They need to be circumcised. That's necessary. We're not saved by faith alone. Well, um, Paul says, let's let's look at this. Uh, Let's just apply the question to Abraham himself, right? Was Abraham justified by faith or by faith plus circumcision? And the irrefutable answer is he was justified by faith alone. And the chronology proves it. Uh, the command regarding circumcision comes 29 years after he's justified by faith. His circumcision has no bearing on his justification at all. And the application then is that, that law-keeping, our obedience, does not have a bearing on justification as a cause. The blessings go to those who believe, not to those who believe um, and then our circumcised come under the Mosaic law. Well, a question would immediately come up from the Jews who, who are listening, and they would say then, well, why was Abraham circumcised? I mean, if circumcision is not, was not necessary to be received in God's sight, as the Jews were convinced it was, well, then what's it for? And Paul tells us what it's for. Verse 11 He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now again, just hold with me here. Um, Because this is a really important point. Paul's just pointing out that circumcision 
is not a human act of obedience that somehow makes Abraham worthy of justification. Circumcision is a divine act of assurance to those who believe. Notice in your text, if you just got your eyes focused on your text, circumcision was a seal. That's a, con- a-, a confirmation, an assurance of the righteousness Abraham had by faith. So, so circumcision is God's assurance, God speaking to the truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and God gives this assurance to Abraham 29 years after he's justified. Now, we had a baptism this morning, and I'd like just to point out that this text is one place where we differ with our Baptist brothers and sisters. Uh, Baptists believe that the significance of a sacrament, they're called an ordinance, is that it is a sign of personal faith and commitment to God. So it's an act of obedience that, that, that we perform. It's a sign of our faith and our commitment to God, which they'll say, is why we can't baptize babies. Babies can't exercise that faith or that commitment. They don't yet have faith. But, but you see, that's a misunderstanding of what the sacraments mean. Sacraments are not us talking to God. Sacraments are always God talking to us. Someone just asked me recently um, if they should be rebaptized. They've been baptized as an infant, but they had really uh, lived... Um, in unbelief and sin, and, and now they're coming to faith, and they say, uh, you know, should I be rebaptized? I said, well, we understand that God speaks to us in baptism, and explained how that works, and he understood that and agreed with that, and I said, well, do you think God needs to repeat himself? He's spoken. That's what he does in the sacrament, and you see, um, since, baptism, since, since circumcision, you see, it's not a sign of our faith. Baptism is not a sign of our faith. And I'm using baptism and circumcision because Paul links them together in the New Testament. But they're a sign of God's promise that he gives to faith. So the text says specifically, right, circumcision is not a sign of Abraham's faith, but a, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. That's the gospel promise, that God gives righteousness to those who believe. And baptism is a seal. God's saying yes to that. If you believe, you will be justified. And that, um, that's, what the, that's what it means. It's God's confirming sign and seal. Now, a Baptist might respond, yes, but notice the text says that Abraham received the sign as a seal of the righteousness that he had because he believed and babies can't believe, which we could grant that. That's true. However, God commanded the sign and seal of circumcision to every infant descendant of Abraham. You see, in other words, every concern a Baptist can raise over infant baptism can be equally raised over infant circumcision. Circumcision, Paul says, is a sign and seal of the righteousness Abraham had by Abraham's faith and God says, I want you to give that sign to every one of your descendants. And it's exactly the same in baptism. It's God saying, 
a sign and a seal of the righteousness that comes by faith, not by works. And God says, I want you to give that to your children. You see, it's God's confirming sign of the gospel. And it's not just for Abraham's descendants, of course, it's for all who are far off, right? Acts 2. To you and your sons, your descendants after you, and for all those who are far off, for Gentiles, and that's what Paul says in verse 10b. The purpose was to make him, Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised, the Gentiles, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. On what basis? Faith. Faith alone. It all, it just all holds together. And so uh, Paul is just making this point that the circumcision that God gave to, um, to Abraham has now been realized in, in Christ that we're made righteous by faith just like Abraham and by faith alone. No circumcision necessary. No law-keeping makes us worthy of it. The gospel promise is for everyone who believes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, God promises to justify them. By faith and faith alone. It's a beautiful, beautiful promise. Now, uh, there's a problem. You see, because, uh, and we'll wrap up with this. The Roman Catholic Church was reading their Bibles, and they said, yeah, but wait a minute. James says that we're not saved, we're not justified by faith alone. So if you have your Bible, go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. This is uh, the, the Roman Church's constant response. This is one of the reasons why Luther, in exasperation, uh, for a while decided that James shouldn't belong in the Bible, because he just had a hard time answering this. This challenge, Luther changed his mind later on and, and came to a better understanding. But, but this, is a, this is an important text. James 2, let's begin at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? So he says, I have faith. He doesn't have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. And shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, what do you do with that? Because it looks like a flat-out contradiction between James and Paul. James is saying we're justified by faith alone. James says, no, we're not justified by faith alone. How do you reconcile? Well, well we need to understand, first of all, the context. And, and we ask the question, what, what issue are they addressing? What question is Paul asking and what question is James asking? Paul is asking, how is a sinner justified before God? That's his question, and his answer is by faith alone. James is asking, what kind of faith justifies? 
See, what good is it if someone says he has faith, but it doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? James wants to look at the, the nature of the faith that justifies. Can that faith save him? Can he be justified by a fruitless faith? I say I believe, but there's no evidence of it in his life. And he says, no, you, faith without evidence is just dead faith. Can he be, can he be saved by an intellectual faith? The, the, the faith that the devil has, right? Uh, I believe there's a God. I believe Jesus came. I believe Jesus died. Can that faith save him? No, it's the devil's faith. You got to be, the faith that saves is true faith. James isn't disagreeing. James isn't saying, yeah, Paul, missed on that one. James completely agrees we're justified by faith and by faith alone. But the point James wants to make is that faith that justifies will not be alone. It will have evidence. It will have fruit. Now, Another point we need to make here, um, and so in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works. There was, there was fruit to his faith. Now, you might still be scratching your head because James says Abraham our father was justified by works, and, and that's where we just have to apply the second principle here of uh, exegeting the text, and that's to realize James and Paul are using um, the word justification, in it has two senses. Paul uses one sense. James uses the other. Paul uh, uses the sense of justification that means to declare, legally declare righteous. That's one sense. There's another way the word is used, and that is to confirm or prove something. So that's how we use the word. If, if, uh, if I say to you, that guy was just trying to justify himself, you understand that I'm not saying he's making a legal declaration about himself. You understand that I'm saying, well, he's just trying to prove that he's right. He's trying to prove he wasn't in the wrong. He's trying to kind of cover himself. He's trying to justify himself. That's the second meaning of the word. Jesus uses that in Luke chapter 10, 29. A young man came to him and asked, what do I need to do? Jesus says, to be saved. And Jesus basically said, just keep the whole law perfectly. And the man's on his back, heals. And so we read, seeking to justify himself, he said, who is my neighbor? He's not looking to make a legal declaration about himself. He's looking to, to, to cover and to prove that he's a good guy and he's, he's worthy of eternal life. So that's how James uses the word. How do we know that Abraham truly believed God. Well, his, how do we know that Abraham had saving, justifying faith? Well, it showed in his actions. He was willing to sacrifice his own son in the conviction, the believing confidence that God was able to raise the dead. That's faith. You take a knife over your own son and you're ready to put it through his chest, slit his throat, whatever the, the intent was. You're willing to do that because you believe that God is able to raise the dead? That's faith. And that's what the point that James is making. Abraham's works confirm the reality of his faith. So there's not a disagreement here. We are saved by faith alone, but faith, saving faith, will be a fruit-bearing faith. 
Paul says it in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. In the evenings we're going through a series on the fruit of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of faith. Love and joy and peace, it's all fruit of faith. What, what is able to make us loving people? It's the conviction that I have been loved, I am loved by my Father in heaven, by my Lord Jesus Christ. And that conviction frees me from my fear, frees me from my selfishness and my pride, and I'm able to finally start loving people. It's faith, you see, that makes that possible. Paul says in Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace to the fruit of the Spirit in believing. In believing. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith is the key. You see, that, that, that makes us able to bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Faith is what makes, uh, what makes it possible. And so James and Paul then are, are both pounding home this beautiful point, brothers and sisters, that we're not saved by our efforts. We're saved by believing. We're saved by believing in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me just wrap this up by, by being very blunt how the, why this matters. As we gather here this morning, we gather as people who have sinned and people who still sin. Some of you this morning are harboring deep bitterness in your heart that has robbed all the joy out of your life. You, you're convinced that you're a victim in some sense. and God's not been right. Some of you struggle with alcohol this morning. Some of you struggle with pornography this morning. Some of you have had sex outside of marriage. Some of you are deeply angry with God. Some maybe with your parents or someone who's hurt you in a deep way. Some of you have very little concern for God at all. In other words, we're, we're, we're people who have sinned. And we're people who are sinning. And we should have the sense, every one of us, to realize we don't have the ability to make that right. There's no amount of, of theological acumen. There's no amount of going to church. There's, there's, there's nothing you're going to be able to do that's going to break the power of sin in your life. And so you see, this, this truth of Romans 4 isn't just a debate about some esoteric point of theology. It's about whether you're going to live in slavery or whether you're going to live in freedom. Because the gospel, you see, is the promise that God gives that if you will confess the truth of your sin and call on the name of the Lord, believe in Jesus Christ, lay hold of Him as your only hope, you can be set free. You can be made can be justified, declared righteous before the presence of God. God will forgive all of your sins and God will transform your life so that you do not need to continue to live under the enslaving power of sin. You can be radically changed. Not in an instant. Usually it doesn't happen that way. It's a process, but God promises that process will happen as you live by faith as you live by faith 
That's the battle to fight. What do I believe about Jesus Christ? What do I believe about the promises God has made to me in Christ? Do I believe that God means it when he says the work that he begins, he will carry on to completion? Do I believe God means that? Do I believe God means it when he says, if I call in the name of the Lord, that I will be saved and the devil can't do a thing about it? Do I believe that when Jesus says, whoever believes in me has passed over from death to life, do I believe that so I do not need to be afraid to die? What do I believe? What do I actually, in truth, believe? And lay hold, friends, of that faith and watch it transform your life. And don't settle for anything less than a faith that's laying hold of the reality of God, a faith that's laying hold of the riches of Jesus Christ, and, that, and, and by the power then of God, released or at work through your faith, experiencing love and joy and peace and patience because of what you believe. John 6, 28, some men came to Jesus and they said, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? And Jesus' response was, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work. Do you? Do you? If you've never come to that point, then today's the day. Jesus invites you today to believe in that way. And for all of us who do believe, our prayer will be, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me, help my unbelief. I want to be a person who lives by faith and experiences all that God promises to it. Amen. God in heaven, we are sinners, and you have given us a Savior in Jesus Christ, and I thank you that we are saved by faith and by faith alone, and so all the glory goes to you alone. Father, you, you've spoken this word. I pray that you apply it to our hearts. Make us, Lord, people who believe in truth and people who have the joy of seeing that faith bear fruit in our life and people, Lord, who have um, this wonderful conviction that you are for us in Jesus Christ and all that you've promised to us in him are surely ours by faith and by faith alone. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close our service a little different than we usually do. I usually pick a song that reflects directly on the message. And I, um, I just wanted to let the message speak for itself and, and encourage you to think about it and pray about it. And we're going to close just with a prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Could we stand and do that together?
Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen.